0: I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, March 17th, we're studying Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. Jesus makes a startling announcement to his disciples. The magnificent stones of their beloved temple in Jerusalem will one day be brought to ruins. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeff Hemmer. Pastor Hemmer serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Pastor Hemmer, welcome back to Sharp Iron.
1: Good morning, Pastor Apple. It's great to be with you.
0: So we get started this morning, Pastor Hemmer. Give us some context going into Mark 13. What's Jesus been doing? What do we need to know to help us understand this text today?
1: So Jesus has been through uh, a lot of different questions and answers, Uh, some some catechesis um, moving up into the temple at the end of chapter 11 Um, then uh, he's had some parables then uh, lots lots and lots of catechesis that Jesus is doing Uh, in the middle of of chapter 12 he's had um, the uh, well first the uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians so he gets one camp uh, of the, uh, the Jewish leadership to come to him to try to test him, to try to trap him in what he says, and they ask a question about paying taxes. And then when he rebuffs the Pharisees and the, and the, uh, the, the folks from Herod, then the Sadducees come to him with a question about the resurrection. Um, so he, he's not caught in, in either of those traps. Um, he gives a, a clear confession about the truth of the of the resurrection and the problem with the Sadducees is that they don't know the Word of God or the power of God when they rise he says it's it's just very much matter of fact um, and then then some of the scribes come up uh, and they ask him about the commandments and so he quizzes them goes back and forth um, towards the end of chapter 12 Jesus is still teaching in the t- in the temple um, and now he turns around and asks them a question about David and the son of David and the promise of the Messiah to come from the line of David and then he sort of summarizes this interaction with these various groups who, who come to him and try to trap him try to expose him as a false teacher um, with uh toward the very end of chapter 12 with a warning beware of the scribes and then he has a litany of of what they do Uh, they they want to be treated with honor Uh, they make a a pretense out of their long prayers they want people to to see and honor their giving Um, and they devour widows houses in so doing and then he has the example of the widow who puts in the the two small uh, copper coins, and he praises her giving, because she's given out of her poverty. She gives everything that that she has. So, lots of sort of terse interactions all throughout chapter twelve, and that, and then a warning to conclude chapter twelve, and a word of praise for someone who, in the eyes of the culture, seems very much not worthy of praise, and that brings us right up to chapter 13, where Jesus will be departing from the temple. So he's been teaching in the temple, and now he's going to depart from the temple, and and in fact, this will be his, his final, uh, in Mark's account of the gospel, I think this is the very last time that, that he'll be teaching in the temple, and as he departs from it, he'll say something about the conclusion of the function of the temple.
0: So the temple has been pretty central to Holy Week. I mean, after Jesus enters on Palm Sunday, he goes and looks at the temple. It's too late for him to do anything that day, but he goes right back the next. He cleanses the temple. He spent his time so far in Holy Week teaching in the temple. And now, as you said, for the last time, he's going to leave the temple and All of chapter 13 is is going to be a discourse of Jesus that gets started based on his disciples' question concerning the temple. In terms of the temple's function for faithful Israelites in this day, why is the temple so central? I think we need to understand that as we think about what Jesus is going to say today and perhaps how shocking it would have been to his own disciples.
1: Well, think about the, the history of the temple as as God has claimed for himself uh, the the people of Israel. And he draws them out of slavery in Egypt, and they wander in the wilderness for a time. And he does establish a temporary dwelling for himself, the tent, which is the tabernacle, which is not like our quick pop-up tents that, you know, you can zip out of the bag and throw in the air, and they basically set themselves up. There's a lot of work that goes into setting up the tabernacle, and it is itself a fairly ornate structure, but it's not permanent. And so, finally, when God brings his people into the Promised Land, uh, David, uh, whom he makes king, will build a dwelling for himself, wants to build a dwelling for God as well, but it's not yet the time for that. It'll be David's son, Solomon, who builds the temple, which will replace the tabernacle. And now the temple is is much more permanent. And it becomes the only place where God will allow the right worship of the right God to happen. So it's not enough for the people to worship the right God in the right way, if it's done at the wrong place. And so throughout the the histories of the books of Chronicles and Kings, the kings who are faithful in calling the people to worship God alone, but who allow worship of the true God to happen in the so-called high places, which, which imply not in the temple in Jerusalem, are guilty of being bad kings. Because even if they call Israel to a more faithful worship practice, God is very absolute in what he demands of his people. And the place where sacrifices are to be offered is in the temple in Jerusalem. And the sacrificial system itself is is sort of intricately laid out. Very uh, very much detail that, that God gives to his people for how the sacrifices are to be carried out. And when he puts his roots down in the temple the temple becomes the place where those sacrifices are permitted where they are received by god and the and the sacrificial system of of the worship of the people of god in the old testament is not a means by which they earn god's favor it's it's a means by which they encounter a god who imparts to them his gift of holiness that's all the way back in the book of Leviticus. God commands His people to be holy as He is holy, and sacrifices can't replace actual holiness. They're not a means to to do the things that God requires. In fact, they they must be done because the people are not holy. And so, in the sacrifices, then, in in the blood and the smoke. Uh, And and just the, I mean, it's a very gory scene, the sacrifices, day after day, happening in, in the temple, at the altar. God's people encounter a holy God, and instead of being destroyed for their sins, they are absolved from their sins, and they receive His holiness as a gift. Because they can't bring their own holiness, the only one who is holy dispenses His Holiness to them in the interaction that happens in the sacrificial system. So this is what's intended to happen in the Temple. Now, the Temple that that Solomon built was destroyed, and that was itself a very traumatizing thing for the people of Israel, and, and the prophets play to that. They say, because you have forsaken the worship of the one true God... And because you've been chasing after all these false gods eventually he will not only destroy you but he will destroy Jerusalem and even topple the temple his glory will depart from the temple and it will no longer be a place where you can encounter God and in fact it won't even be a place so Solomon's temple is destroyed when, uh, when the southern kingdom of Jerusalem is sacked and, and the people are carried away into exile, some who are less significant are allowed to remain, but they, they're there with no temple, therefore no, uh, no way to offer the sacrifices correctly. Then when the people come back from exile, as God promised, he brings them back from exile and they build the temple again. And so now God puts down roots, builds a seemingly, in the minds of the people who construct it, a permanent structure made from stone. It seems more durable than, than the people who are constructing it, and it is the place, again, where sacrifices will be offered. Well, that second temple, again, is destroyed, and so what Jesus is in, and what he's speaking about, is the the temple that uh, that Herod has taken to construct, um, and it, it's known for its magnificence. It's known to be one of the most beautiful buildings of the ancient world, if not the most beautiful building. That's, that's Herod's goal when he sets out to construct it, bigger than anything else, more magnificent than anything else. no expenses spared built with with huge stones uh, and just looking at it would have evoked in the minds of the people who see the temple the idea that this is the most permanent thing that they could look upon hmm. and it's it's in this temple that Jesus has been teaching it's in this temple where sacrifices would would have been restored and so where the people were encountering the holiness of God, where he was dispensing to them his gifts of forgiveness and holiness anew, because here's, here's the temple, right worship done in the right way of the one true God in the right place is the means by which he gives out his gift of holiness to his people. And, and so all of this is in the minds of the people who are in the temple. They know, of course, that the temple's not truly permanent, having been destroyed twice before. Um, and even, you know, even Herod's construction of the temple probably isn't completed by the time that, that Jesus is even speaking these words. It's sort of like the uh, the, the great cathedrals and churches of Europe, um, that, that when you visit them, almost invariably have, have scaffolding around them somewhere. They're always sort of perpetually under construction well that sort of Herod's temple is still they still haven't had the, the great ribbon cutting ceremony <laughs> yet um, that there's still still parts being done but the people who observe it, it it's a building that preaches a sermon and the sermon that it preaches is that this is the, the permanent place where people will encounter the holiness of God as a gift. Mm.
0: That, that context really helps as our text begins to get to get into the mindset of what the disciples are going to hear from Jesus. So Mark chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, and as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. These are but the beginnings of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, That's our text for today, Mark 13, verses 1 through 13. Pastor Hemmer, what you were saying earlier about the temple really sets the stage for this statement from one of Jesus' disciples to Jesus. Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. This was a marvelous structure. Even in its stage not fully completed in some places, it still would have been just a marvelous building. One of Jesus' disciples invites him to marvel at it, and Jesus says what must have been shocking words to his disciples. Uh, take us into what Jesus says about this destruction that's going to happen.
1: Yeah, so verse 2 would would be just completely out of left field for what, what the disciples were expecting. One of the disciples, one of those being taught by Jesus, following Jesus, sort of hanging on his word, wants to extol the, the building of the temple and probably with it the, the trappings of, of the sacrificial system, the sacrifices being offered there. It's probably even uh, a healthy critique. Of, of the groups who recently were, were coming to Jesus. The the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the scribes, all these people coming to Jesus, sort of pursuing their own righteousness. And if we want to put the, the best construction on uh, one of these disciples who comes here in, in verse 1, it is to say, look, look at this beautiful building and consider the permanence of our encounter with a holy god in this place that's that's what the building preaches to to the people and and jesus takes what this guy says and he just obliterates it that do you see these great buildings he he doesn't merely say that the time of these buildings has come to their completion in fact he says the function of this building, the temple, and its sort of attendant structures, is so finished that this building is now disposable. For all of its seeming permanence, there will not be one stone left upon another. And this, this points forward, of course, to the destruction of the temple, That will happen in the year 70 AD Um, but it points beyond the mere destruction of the temple as well to say this this building is is done it has served its function it has been the place where God's people have received his gift of holiness where their sacrifices were acceptable unto him but now something new is among the people of God. There is a better point of access than, than the sacrifices that were repeated at the temple day after day. Now there will be one sacrifice, and that one sacrifice will be the sacrifice that finishes the whole sacrificial system. And with that sacrifice, the, the function of the temple is completely done and it's it's so final it it's such an ultimate act that it it concludes the necessity of that building altogether and renders that seemingly permanent building beautiful structure massive stones renders it not just obsolete but renders it rubble so there's, there's a sense in which this destruction of the temple happens, we could say, at least three different times. In the person of Jesus, in the incarnation of Jesus, the temple has already become obsolete. In the crucifixion of Jesus, when he is the sacrifice, the full and final sacrifice for sinners that the curtain of the temple that separates the the most holy place the holy of holies from the mere holy place and all the all the rest of the parts of the temple in sort of concentric circles moving outward from the holy of holies the the curtain of the temple is torn and and with that action upon the crucifixion of jesus the temple is rendered disposable it will be destroyed by, um, the the armies in 70 AD but it also points forward to the impermanence of sort of all the other structures that we would look to for safety and security and it and it points forward finally to the return of Jesus and the restoration of his creation that now he promises now the dwelling of God is with man so in the way that the dwelling of God is with man in the person of Jesus he is God in human flesh His full and final kingdom which he inaugurates in his person in his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension but doesn't fully roll out until his return that's when finally even though there is now no temple to be destroyed when when all the sort of other things that anyone might have been hoping in, all those stones are rendered disposable as well.
0: So with the with this matter of the destruction of the temple, just to, to make sure I'm following you, that there's there's certainly this this preaching of the I say the positive aspect that this building is obsolete, it's no longer needed because a new temple is here to pick up the language that Jesus uses in John chapter two, where he he tells the Jews, you destroy this mm-hmm. temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. That in his incarnation his crucifixion, all of his work, really. He now is the temple. And so this building is not needed because he is the place where people are brought into the holiness of God, given that holiness of God by his blood shed on the cross. So that there's a positive teaching of that. It, Is there's also I think you talked a little bit about this, but maybe give us just a little bit more. There's is there also an element of of judgment here upon the temple and and anyone who would look for that permanence outside of of Jesus and, and what he's done.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The the sacrifices already have it seems in first century Palestine have fallen out of favor as the means by which people encounter God. And now, right, I mean, that, that's those are the questions of, of the Pharisees and Herodians and the scribes and the Sadducees. Their questions, so that we just had in chapter 12, all their questions are very works-righteousness kinds of questions. And... The, the religion that God establishes in the Old Testament that he gives to his people, the faith that he gives them, is not a faith built on works. It's a faith built on his gift of holiness, his gift of absolution to his people. And, and that happens, as we said just a minute ago, in the sacrificial system. God has never called his people to be good in order to earn his favor. But that is very much the—it's not an official creed of of Judaism in Jesus' day, but it it will be shortly after the destruction of the temple. Um, but but a, a sort of not not unlike the way that uh, works righteousness was being taught and practiced. Um, by the Roman Catholic Church in the time of the Reformation, but it's not codified, it's not made official doctrine until the Council of Trent, um, you know, 15 years, 10, 15 years, after, even after Luther's death. Uh, it doesn't become official dogma until then. So what what the Jews are practicing is not official Judaism until... 20 years after the destruction of the temple at the Council of Jamnia, when they've sort of been grasping at straws for 20 years, and and they can't... They don't have a, a, a core, a nucleus of their religion anymore if there can't be sacrifices offered at all. So what do they do? Well, they reinvent Judaism and put into official doctrine all the sort of works righteousness that had been being practiced now in the time of jesus so there there is also that and the destruction of the temple is intended to be a similar kind of warning the time that the the first temple was destroyed right god says if you put all your confidence in yourselves and chase after all these false gods, then look what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to send the uh, the Babylonian army to destroy not just Jerusalem, but even the temple in the heart of Jerusalem. And then how will you encounter me? Well, there's a similar kind of judgment being carried out against the, the false religion that would trust in the permanence of the temple in, in now in first century Palestine. Um, 30 or so A.D., as Jesus is, is speaking these words 40 years before the destruction of the Temple actually takes place, and for the final time. After the destruction of the Temple in 70 A.D., it's never never rebuilt again. Um, there's, no, there's no more way for the people of God to do the right worship of the true God, in the right way at the right place because the right place has been obliterated and so the place now is replaced by jesus just like you made reference to john 2 tear down this temple then i will rebuild it in three days jesus speaking not of any building built of stone but of of his own flesh and speaking of the permanence of his flesh um, and that's that's not insignificant for us who who don't have a temple and don't have a place to go, um, we find the place to be wherever Jesus is. Wherever He is, His church gathers, and wherever His church gathers, there He is in the midst of them. That's that's our permanent encounter with God, um, but then also a very a very stern warning about those who would place their trust in. In the building, in in their own righteousness, in their own righteousness that would supplant the, the gift of righteousness that God gives in the sacrificial system in the temple. And that's really what's going on among the people that, that Jesus is, is interacting with, especially back in chapter 12. That their their righteousness in their minds has taken the place of the sacrifices, and yet there's still a confidence in the temple. So Jesus says... You want to trust in your righteousness? Temple's taken away. Hmm. Now what? Hmm.
0: Yeah, now now what? And and Jesus is going to use this to point to himself to the work that he does as the once-for-all sacrifice for all people. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO, looking at Mark 13 with Pastor Jeff Hemmer. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, March 17th. We are studying Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. We have Pastor Jeff Himmer with us. He serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Pastor Hemmer prior to the break we were talking about Jesus leaves the temple for the last time when one of his disciples asked Jesus to marvel at these wonderful buildings he teaches them concerning the impermanence of this building that seems so permanent this judgment that will happen on those who had placed their hope in something other than Jesus as the temple as the place where we have access to God and so in verse 3 Jesus Goes, he's gone out of the temple. He's now back on the Mount of Olives. He's looking across at the temple. And Peter, James, and John and Andrew this time, you get the, the fourth disciple, not just three. They come to him. They ask him privately. And, and again, it makes sense that they would do this because what Jesus has just gotten done saying is earth shattering for them. They can't really comprehend their life without the temple. And so they ask him, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, I guess as a way of introduction to what Jesus will begin, this is a long discourse. We don't have all of it before us today. We're going to pick it up over the next couple of days. But just by way of introduction, what is it that these disciples are asking? And then when Jesus answers, what what is his answer? Is he talking about the destruction of the temple? Is he talking about more than that? Just Just give us an introduction in that way
1: yeah here here you've got a very uh, dodgy Jesus when it comes to their question. so they they ask a pretty precise question. Tell us when will these things be? And I think the the antecedent to the these things are what Jesus has just said in verse two, that is the the temple being destroyed, one stone will not be left upon another the throwing down of these structures, and they say, when will these things be, the things Jesus has just spoken of, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So, they sort of ask, uh, the first question that they ask is, when will this happen? You just spoke of the destruction of the temple, when will that happen, and then What what will be the sign for us that precedes the destruction of the temple, that precedes these things, and these things pointing back to to the most recent thing that Jesus had said to them, not one stone will be left upon another. And then what I think is is just uh, sort of par for the course for Jesus, when you ask him a question, he doesn't answer what they ask. Uh, at least not in in the remaining verses that we have before us this morning um he he answers neither of these two questions when will these things be and what is the sign that they're about to happen about to be accomplished and and he will take them back a step before that and say before you can worry about when these things will be worry about false signs and, and in the midst of, and, and some true signs, but signs that don't give you an exact end date. And, and when these things happen, he has exhortations for them. Be on your guard. Be ready to bear witness. Do not be anxious. Be ready to speak and know that it is the Holy Spirit who speaks within you. So... That's all the answer he gives them immediately, um, and and then as he moves beyond the text that we have before us, he'll move into sort of bigger picture categories than just the immediate destruction of the temple. Um, so in verse 14, he'll move to talking about the abomination of desolation, that is, uh, Something abominable that happens in the holy place that that desolates, desecrates it. Um, that that will happen before the temple is destroyed. But then he's going to push even beyond that. And he's going to push uh, all the way, by the time you get to verse 24 at least, and, and in the verses running up to that, uh, he'll be talking about the coming of the Son of Man. And that is, that's in one sense the Son of Man, that is his Messianic title for himself. He comes in his crucifixion and resurrection, but then he departs in his ascension, and we are still waiting for his coming. So he pushes us all the way to the the eschaton, the last day when all of this is brought to its fullness. And then he'll have uh, a lesson about the fig tree, and then finally when he gets to, to verse 32, he kind of gives an answer to the question that they asked all the way back here, when? And he says in 32, no one knows. Not even the angels, nor the Son, only the Father. Therefore, be on guard and keep awake. You don't know. So he takes a really long time to say, I'm not going to answer your question. He gives them all the word that's necessary for them, What's not necessary for them is to know the when and to know the precise signs that would sort of push, push the thumbtack into the timeline so that they can know exactly when and can count down the years and days and hours and minutes until temple is destroyed or Jesus returns. And he pushes them beyond the mere destruction of the temple all the way to the destruction of the temple and the restoration of heaven and earth on the day of his return Mm. with his very long non-answer.
0: So, and and because of that, because there is, it it seems that there is some, there's some of Jesus answer that he, you know, it, it does talk about things that are going to happen specifically to the disciples and, and some things that, it seems applied to us still today. I mean, how do we, and again, I know this is speaking more in generalities here. We'll, we'll look at the specifics in a moment, but how, how do we know within Jesus answer here, given its generality in many cases, how do we know when, when some things are meant for the disciples in that time and place and, and when they're meant for Christians still today. And I'm thinking, for example, just to, you know, like where he says, They will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten. And then he says, don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Words like that. Are are those meant for the disciples in and lead up to what happens in 70 AD, thinking like the, the book of Acts? Are, are they meant for, I mean, I, I, this is kind of a, a bit of a joke, but I've heard it, you know, like, are they meant so that, well, pastors, you don't really have to prepare for your sermon on Sunday because the Holy Spirit will give you words to say. I, I don't think that's the right application. But you see what I'm asking? How do, how, do we, how do we kind of use this text as Christians? Where do we see things more specific to the disciples for that time and things that are still applicable for us today?
1: Well, there are some things that are definitely only applicable to the disciples in those verses, delivering you over to councils and being beaten in synagogues, standing before governors and kings and bearing witness before them, a lot of that history we watch unfold throughout the Book of Acts. And and all of that records a history prior to the destruction of the Temple in 70 AD. So there's there's kind of an immediate fulfillment of what Jesus prophesies, the destruction of the temple, by the time the temple is actually destroyed, most of Jesus' apostles uh, will themselves have been killed as well. Um, By 70 AD, the only one really surviving who, who escapes the death of martyrdom will be St. John, so he's here in this crowd of four who ask him privately, but but the other three, Peter, James, and John, um, all will be martyred before the temple is destroyed. So some of this applies immediately to these four to whom Jesus speaks. There's There's a broader application for us because what what these four apostles are waiting for and that's not for the destruction of the temple but they're waiting for the full uh, revealing of the kingdom of God we also are waiting for and so what applies to them because they're waiting for the fullness of the kingdom of God applies to all the disciples who still today await the full revelation of the kingdom of God that will happen on the day of Jesus' return. So while waiting, we are very much in not the identical situation that they are, but in a very similar situation. So the specifics of the text apply to these four disciples. It's an answer that he gives to them. But, but sort of the general sense of the text that all disciples of Jesus must be ready to give an answer, whether it's before councils, before being beaten in synagogues, standing before governors and kings, being on trial, being handed over to the Gentiles. All of us have to be ready to give an account. Um, and, and that's even, uh, right, Peter will even include that in his epistle, the... Be ready to give an apology, a defense of the hope that is within you. So what Jesus gives to these apostles, the apostles will give to the rest of the church. So these things happen specifically to them, and and most of them are martyred by the time the temple is destroyed— but they pass it on to us by means of the word that they preach and the epistles that they write. The content of the apostolic faith is, is written down and handed on to us by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus promises, it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit speaking through these men, these apostles, and the Spirit inspires them to put to ink and, and parchment, what they are confessing um, and what is being confirmed by, by the miracles that surround this first generation of the Church, and then that's handed on to us. So the Holy Spirit has given to us what we are to say, and what we are to say is the witness to the apostolic faith, um, and, and that is the, the content of the faith that we still confess. Right? So we, we speak of one holy, Christian, and apostolic church, that is, the, the content of what we believe is, is what was delivered to us from the mouths and pens of these apostles. So the Holy Spirit gave to them what they were to say, and they put it into, into the Word of God in their writings, And we have that. We're not waiting for the Holy Spirit to give us what to say. He's already given it to us. He's written it down for us. And we have the ongoing Word of God. We have the written Word of God. We have the incarnate Word of God, Jesus, whose flesh he already promised us is more permanent than the stones of the temple, who meets his disciples Sunday after Sunday in his Word and in his sacraments, and we have the ongoing apostolic message, the preached Word of God, that happens week after week from our pulpits. Pastors don't preach anything new, and they're not waiting during the the hymn of the day for the Holy Spirit to give them inspiration. They're engaging with what the Holy Spirit has given them in the Word of God and bringing that to the people of God from the pulpit on Sunday morning. That's, that's what the Holy Spirit has given us, and that, that is the sure and certain thing that we don't need to be anxious beforehand, because it's been given to us now by the Holy Spirit. It's the Word of God. It's the New Testament. It's, it's the whole revealed Word of God.
0: That is a fantastic answer. I, I, I love it. We're not waiting for the Holy Spirit to give us what to say. He already has in the Holy Scriptures. That's fantastic, Pastor Hammer. That's just, amen. So let's, let's pick up some of the things that we, we skipped over in going to that. Jesus, the first thing that he says as he responds to the question is, the first thing he brings up is is the matter of being led astray. And he, he says, there's going to be a lot of people who come in my name and they'll claim to be me, Jesus says, and they'll lead people astray. Why is this the first thing that Jesus warns them about?
1: Well, there will be, right, so they're all, they're looking forward to something and in, in sort of the anxious waiting for what it is not yet happened, we are easily distracted. And so many will come. This is another warning about false prophets. Many will come in my name, that is, standing in the place of the Messiah, the Anointed One, saying, I am he and will lead many astray. And, and he gives a sort of very specific warning. You'll hear of wars. There will be rumors of wars nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, various places, famines, and these are just the beginning of of the labor pains. So we we want an easy, quick fulfillment. I think that's the nature of our sinful flesh, is that we settle for small fulfillments of what we hope for, and so he's saying, don't settle for less than the real thing, and the real thing is me. The only one who, who properly comes in Jesus' name is Jesus himself, and all of these things will happen, and they all will call us not to look for an easy solution to wars and nations rising against nations and earthquakes and famines, not to look for an easy out, but to sharpen our hope for, for the, the full and final answer to, to these predicaments. And that's not, you know, the answer to, to big earthquakes is not smaller earthquakes, The answer to big wars is not fewer wars uh, or smaller wars. The answer to those things is the return of Jesus and the cessation of all wars and all earthquakes and all famines and all nations rising against nations because on the day of his return he makes all things right. Nothing is left undone, and though it, it feels like we, we could settle for something less than that, right? We could We could get a band-Aid over the wars and settle for, you know smaller or fewer wars. Jesus promises something much better than just whatever our our human uh, arrangements can fix. He promises a divine solution. To, to the predicament that sinners have gotten ourselves into, he promises the removal of sin and all of sin's consequences on the day of his return. So, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, word of caution that he gives to these apostles, as if, as if to say, don't even worry about the destruction of the temple. I told you the destruction of the temple is going to happen, All these things are going to happen as well, wars, earthquakes, famines, and let none of that draw your hope away from the end. And by the end, he means the beginning, the inauguration of his full and final kingdom, the perfect consummation of our hopes, the dwelling of God with man that that the church will be longing and praying for until that day. So... Don't let anyone who's who who's selling something smaller than than the full restoration of creation, even if done in the name of Jesus, don't let anyone sell you that smaller bill of goods because it's not what Jesus promises
0: mm-hmm. it, yeah, I mean you know it's not like we it's not like we're we're mad when there's smaller wars or or when the earthquakes are are less destructive or something right. like that yeah. we're we're certainly thankful for those things. But, but I appreciate what you're saying because it, we can get the false impression that, you know, oh, look, it, it got better this time. You know, the, the war wasn't as bad. And again, thanks be to God for that. But but don't be misled to think that full, true peace will come with anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who again, is... The true temple, the place where we encounter God, and, and so thanks be to God when these things aren't as bad. But don't be fooled that when you see them or when you don't see them, keep your eyes focused on the end, on on Jesus and on His coming as the full restoration of all things that only He can bring. Pastor Hemmer, we've got about five minutes here on the morning, and there's there's plenty of things to talk about. So I'll kind of let you you take the lead on that, At looking toward the the second paragraph of Jesus' answer that we have for today. We've, we've talked about the speaking and the giving witness in these cases. One of the the main emphases, it seems, in that paragraph is this matter of, of persecution, being delivered over to authorities, even within your own family. Jesus concludes in our text for today with a, a pretty hopeful note, I think, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Again, with about five minutes, help us into that paragraph, pick up the themes and, and summarize for us as well this text
1: yeah it really gets dark before the second half of verse 13 Um, brother will deliver brother over to death and uh, father I mean that that we sort of understand that but father delivering his child and children will rise against their parents and put them to death I mean these these are the things of of horror stories Um, the the most ghastly Horrent human betrayals that we could think of are those in in the most intimate right children against parents parents against children brother against brother and have them put to death and then he gets to sort of the darkest line you will be hated by all for my name's sake there's no there's no room at all for a prosperity gospel here, right? There's no room at all for small fulfillment of hopes. What, what you were saying um, earlier, that momentary relief is not a substitute for full, permanent resurrection. And so what Jesus calls for at the very end is endurance. And endurance doesn't come from within us. Just like we we pray in the Lord's Prayer, the final petition of the Lord's Prayer, Deliver Us From Evil, the Catechism teaches us, means not just momentary, temporary deliverance from evil, but eventually the deliverance from evil that happens either when we die or when Jesus returns, and evil no longer has any power over us and the only one who gives us the endurance to make it to that finish line the day of jesus return or the day of our rest in the grave until his return is is the holy spirit the same holy spirit who's given us his word is is the same god of encouragement the same god of endurance who gives us a sort of supernatural endurance that can't come from within us it can only come From the outside in. So, how do we endure? How do we face persecution? It's the same way that that these apostles will endure and face persecution, it's not on their own. It's not that one of them is preaching something different from another one. It's that, that the 12 of them, or eventually the 11 and then the 12 of them again, are preaching the same thing and encouraging one another, granting to one another the the Holy Spirit's gift of endurance by their common confession of Christ crucified, raised, ascended, and will return. So we encourage one another and we gather to receive the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us that that give us this kind of supernatural endurance. Do you want to be able to endure to the grave, receive the body and blood of him who went to the grave for you? In in Jesus word and sacraments alone is the kind of endurance that we need to face the persecution that inevitably comes to those who are known by the name of Jesus. He doesn't say, you might be hated, some people might dislike you because of my name, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's, that's how much power there is in the name of Jesus. Either you love it or you hate it, and if you bear it, then those who hate it will also hate you. So you find your endurance in the means that the Holy Spirit has appointed to to give us that endurance. His Word, His sacraments, He draws us back to Jesus, and Jesus' flesh, which is, to take us back to the beginning of the text this morning, is more permanent than any stone of the temple. The flesh of Jesus is more enduring than that, is, is what He gives to His Christians to fortify them and to give them endurance until the end, until the day of his return, and then his promise, that one who endures, and not on his own strength, but on the strength that comes from the outside in, from the Lord himself, the one who endures, by my strength, he promises, will be saved.
0: Pastor Jeff Hemmer is the pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. Pastor Hemmer, thanks for being our guest today.
1: Pastor Apple, as always, it's been a
0: pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have a question about Mark chapter 13 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.